Hi, I'm Nikki, and here's a few things that are coming up here at Crossroads. Crossroads is dedicated to serving our church and reaching the community. One example of how we've done that is by partnering with an organization called Community One. They specialize in repairing or in some cases, restoring homes for communities around the Evansville area. This is a great way to show love and change our neighborhoods. Community One has several projects right now that need some help. So if you're willing to help out with construction or even landscaping, contact Community One at volunteer at communityone.org and see how you are able to help. The Agape Fund is an amazing fund that assists active members at Crossroads with financial help when things aren't lining up for them. To help grow this fund so we can meet more needs, use the offering envelopes or designate the fund when you give online at cccgo.com. Have you ever left a store or a restaurant and said to yourself, I wish I could go there every week. Those people were just so nice. Well, that's exactly the kind of place we wanna be here at Crossroads. We want people to be waiting to come back because they wanna be at a place where they feel welcome and loved. If you wanna be a part of the team that makes this place feel like home each weekend, head on over to our Connection Center after service where you can sign up to join one of our First Impressions teams. No qualifications or experience necessary other than a smile and a heart ready to serve the people of our church. Let's make this place feel like home together. For more information on these events and the many others that are happening here at Crossroads, you can check your bulletin or go online to cccgo.com. Back in August, I attended my high school reunion back in Louisville where I grew up. And to be honest with you, I didn't know what to expect. It was our first reunion. And you and I both know that this is one of those events that has the potential to be really awkward, right? And so I showed up at the restaurant where the reunion was held. And about 40 of the 156 classmates that I graduated with ended up showing up that night. And truthfully, it was a great night. It was fun catching up with a lot of people and to see where different uh, classmates are in life. I talked to one girl and she said, so you're a pastor now, aren't you? And I said, yeah, that's right. She said, huh, that's the last thing I ever thought you'd be doing. <laughs> I didn't like dating her anyways. So, uh, <laughs> well, about 30 minutes into this reunion, a girl that I graduated with by the name of Stephanie walked into the room where we were all meeting and conversing and and she was one of those girls I remember from high school that didn't have a lot of friends and she was always quiet and reserved and, and you could just tell that she probably came from a really broken home and, and had a really rough background and, and I'd be willing to bet that Stephanie's high school experience probably wasn't the best. And so as I'm standing in the back of the room talking with a lot of my friends and, and we're all catching up, I'm, I'm just kind of noticing Stephanie and her date as they walked in to see if anybody was going to welcome her, if anybody was going to go out of their way to, to at least say hi to her. And, and it seemed like for several minutes, no one said anything. She just kind of stood there all by herself. 
Well, a few minutes later, she realized where the food was, and so she made a beeline for the food that was seated on a bar in the back of the room, and she and her date went and got a plate and then ordered a drink, and they they went and sat at a table in the corner of the room where they just sat by themselves for a few moments. Now, before I could approach them, before I even could get uh, get through to to talk with them, about 15 minutes later, they both just kind of stood up rather abruptly and walked out of the reunion without saying goodbye to anybody. And so while we were all laughing and having a good time and reminiscing on old memories, evidently in that moment, Stephanie realized that not much had changed from high school. And I got to tell you, as I walked away that night, as I went home, it really bothered me. I mean, part of me felt guilt for not doing more or at least acting more aggressively to welcome her, to, to make her feel like she was a part of this. But you see, I walked away realizing that she left early because she just didn't feel like she fit in. I mean, she walked away because she realized, I just don't really belong here. And you see, it's one thing to feel that way at a reunion, But is it possible that that describes some people's experiences every single week at churches everywhere? I mean, maybe that describes your story before you walked away from God for a time because you never felt like you fit in. You never felt like you were good enough. You couldn't behave the right way. Or maybe you had some questions and doubts that you just didn't feel comfortable asking people. And in fact, you did one time and then you were just kind of embarrassed and shamed for even approaching that. And and so you just never felt like you fit in. And so you just ended up walking away. Therefore, one of the more important questions we can ask ourselves as the church goes like this. What did Jesus originally have in mind when he established this community nearly 2,000 years ago? In other words, what's this all about? I mean, what is our primary mission? What is our purpose as a church? And and so in this series that we're beginning today called This Is What It's All About, we're going to explore that question about what Jesus originally intended for his followers when they gathered what our primary purpose is all about. And so in this series, for the next month or so, we are going to walk through a book in the New Testament called the book of Acts, where we are going to look at some different stories that describe to us what the first church was doing. All right, so the book of Acts kind of serves as, a, uh, as an eyewitness account to the way God was moving during the first century when the church was first started. All right, it's written by a guy by the name of Luke. He was a doctor, and he just was an eyewitness to the different things that were going on back then. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of Acts. It's uh, towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the books of John and Romans. If you don't own a Bible, there's a uh, black Bible right in front of you, in the pew in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's right on that table as you walked in uh, a moment ago. And uh, today we are going to pick up uh, in chapter 1, all right? Now, as you're turning there, let me just kind of set the scene for you uh, for just a moment. Uh, It's been about a month. It's been over a month, actually, since Jesus was crucified. He was murdered. He was placed in a grave in a tomb. And three days later, Jesus crashed his funeral. He defeated death, he walked out of his grave, and he appeared to about 500 different people with the purpose of proving that he really was God, that that he really did possess the authority and power to forgive sin. And so he appeared to all these people so that they would realize that he's true, that that he really is God. And, 
And so that's, that's what's kind of happened. And, and so right before Jesus heads back up to heaven, all right, he tells his followers, his closest friends, that uh, he's going to come back to earth one day. But before he does that, everybody who calls upon his name has a job to do, that we all have a mission to be a part of. Now, we both know that someone's last words are really important, right? Some of us have probably had a last words moment with somebody that we've loved before. Uh, the closest that I've ever had experiencing a last words moment probably was back in January when my dad uh, was prepping for surgery to go and have a heart transplant. And, and before the nurse wheeled him away to, to have the surgery, we both knew, my dad and I, that he may not make it through the procedure, that there was a really good chance that his heart would fail and that the surgery wouldn't be successful and that he would end up dying there on the operating table. And so we had a last words moment before the nurse wheeled him away. And, and I got to tell you, we didn't talk about the weather, right? I mean, we didn't talk about sports, we didn't talk about politics or cars, things that we love. No, in that moment, my dad told me how much he loved me and how proud he was of me because that was his last chance to tell me something that he had been wanting to tell me. Now, gratefully, he did make it through the surgery, and I have a very healthy dad uh, to this day. But you know that when you have one opportunity to say something that's really important, you better pay attention, right? And so this is that kind of moment from Jesus to us where we pick up in Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 8. Check out what Jesus says before just uh, going back up to heaven. He says, he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus says. Now, when Jesus' followers first heard this, it still didn't add up for them. But realize that this was before the church had even been established. All right, So they had no idea what this would look like in the future. And so here's the thing that we can take away from what Jesus says here. That the mission of Jesus came before the church of Jesus. Before there was a church, there was first a mission. Now, notice that Jesus didn't say right here, uh, you will receive the Holy Spirit, and when he comes upon you, you will be able to care for one another really well. He didn't say that, right? He didn't say, hey, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to have the insight to discover some end times prophecy of when I'm going to come back, and you're going to be able to tell everyone about that. No, from the beginning, our primary mission as the church hasn't been to solve some social issue. It's not that those things aren't important in the church. It's just that we've been given one mission that supersedes others. You see, we are called to be intentional and direct with telling everyone everywhere about this Jesus guy and what he's done for us. Business expert Gregory McCown says in his New York Times bestseller book, Essentialism, he says, everything changes when we give ourselves permission to be more selective in what we choose to do. Isn't that just true? And so Jesus was very selective in what he told us to do. You see, the church doesn't have a mission. Rather, the mission of Jesus has a church. All right, catch that again. The church doesn't have a mission. Rather, the mission of Jesus has a church. It's us. And so when Jesus told his followers that the mission was to spread his message all across the world, it first started in Jerusalem and would go to all corners of the globe. And so after this, everyone, all of his followers just kind of huddled up in a room and, and waited for this Holy Spirit that Jesus said was going to come upon them. Flip over to the next chapter and let's read what this moment looked like. Pick up with me in chapter 2, verse 2. Words will be right here. Suddenly... 
there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. All of Jesus' followers were just sitting there chilling out. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, what in the world was the fire all about? I mean, what's going on here? Well, all throughout the Old Testament... Realize that fire represented the presence of God. One of the first stories we read about this happening is when God appeared in the form of a burning bush to a guy by the name of Moses, and he gave Moses his mission in life and what he was to do from that day forward. And so later on, God then used a ball of fire in the sky at night to lead his people, the Israelites, out of slavery from Egypt into the promised land. And so this moment right here in Acts, Acts 2 signified a huge change. And it meant this, that the sovereign God over all creation was no longer distant from humanity. There was no longer a separation that occurred. Rather, he was making himself accessible to everyone. You see, the living God in this moment took up residence within people, within us. Well, this scene just attracted thousands of people that were there in Jerusalem for a festival. And, and so they all just gathered outside this house. They didn't know what was going on. And, and they just wondered what was taking place. And so in this crowd that day, there were some that thought that, that whoever was in that house was just kind of kicking back on Grandpa's old cough medicine. <laughs> they thought that, hey, those guys have just drunk way too much Jack Daniels from the night before. All right, and that's exactly true. And so a guy by the name of Peter steps outside this house and he decides to address what they thought was happening. And so check out how Peter uses humor at the very beginning. He says this, hey, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk as some of you are assuming. Catch this, this is just hilarious. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. (laughs) I mean, that was Peter's way of saying, hey, look, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, but it's only 9 a.m. here, all right? We're not that desperate, all right? And so check out verse 32 of what Peter then begins to tell these people that day. It kind of summarizes his main idea, the main point of his message. He said, God raised this Jesus. Do you remember that guy? He walked these streets over a month ago, and do you remember what you did to him? You asked that he be crucified. He was God. All right, that was the Messiah. But he raised him from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now, Peter says, he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. Now, realize that that God's right hand, it signifies authority and power. You see, for thousands of years, the Jewish people anticipated this Messiah that would be sent to them from God, who would deliver them and rescue them. They didn't know exactly what this would look like, but God had foretold of this person arriving and And so they were anxiously awaiting him. King David wrote about this a lot throughout his writings. And and King David, who Peter references here in this talk, says that this Messiah would sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And so this was David's way of saying, hey, look, Jesus has ultimate authority and power. And so Peter's just connecting the dots here for his original Jewish audience. Now time out here for just a second. Don't we need to be reminded of this right now before the election? (laughs) I mean, can I assure you of one thing? That God is not up in heaven right now just scurrying and just pacing back and forth thinking, man, what in the world am I going to do here? (laughs) 
I mean, he hasn't gathered the angels together and said, all right, I didn't think Donald and Hillary would make it this far, so who's responsible for this one, right? (laughs) I mean, that's not taking place. Rather, do you know what's going to happen on the morning of Wednesday, November 9th? We are going to wake up and God is still going to be seated on the throne. You see, no king, no government, no dictator, president, or presidential candidate has ever even been a slight threat to the power and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It just has never happened and it never will happen. He wins in the end and we as the church can rest in that hope and be joyful about it. Now, I will say this, that there have been selfless men and women in the past who have given up their lives so that we as Americans can express our right to vote. And so we as the church need to follow through with that. We need to vote and vote our conscience. But at the end of the day, we need to rest in this, that regardless of who's president, Jesus is still king. All right? And so... And so Peter saying, hey, look, Jesus, he's sitting at the right hand, the throne of God, and that's still happening to this day. Now back to our story. He, he ended by telling these people that, hey, if you want Jesus to be a part of your life, you need to stop running from God. You need to turn around, repent, and be baptized. And that's what we talked about last weekend. And so for the first time ever, people were realizing that they could find rest from the pressure of trying to be good enough. You see, Peter made known to everyone everywhere that we could have peace with God by simply receiving what Jesus had done. You see, the promise of the empty tomb is that empty people can can finally be filled. Empty people, you and I, walking through life broken and lonely, we can be filled because there's an empty tomb in the Middle East today. Now, sometimes as a pastor, I get this question a lot, and I understand it, that, you know, why, why the cross, why the empty tomb? I mean, if God really is in control, if he really is sovereign, couldn't he have just declared some kind of divine amnesty between us and him and and declared just a big do-over when we sinned and chose to rebel and walk away from him? I mean, why did he have to send himself, his son, to die on the cross in a really just gruesome death? It's a good question. But you see, for us to really grasp the cross and for us to understand the grave, we need to understand three basic concepts about who God is and what he offers. All right, God is just, God is merciful, but God is also full of grace. And so we need to grasp what justice, mercy, and grace really is. Now, justice goes like this. Justice is getting what we deserve. All right, because we've rebelled, because we've sinned, it's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. We've all missed the mark in our life. We deserve death. Now, you do not want a sovereign God who is not just. Trust me, even if you think you want that God, you don't want that God. Talk about a God being unfair. Talk about the universe being run by a lunatic. No, because God is just, because he is good, there there are things in our life that have to be punished. And so when we sin, all right, that is literally walking away from God who refers to himself as life. Therefore, if we're going to run from him, that means that we are running towards death. A good God says if something wrong happens, punishment must follow. And so justice is what we deserve because of sin. But then there's mercy. And mercy goes like this. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. All right, so 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place. And the offer of the cross, the author of the empty tomb, is to not get what we deserve. In other words, we don't have to be the recipients of God's justice. We don't have to be the recipients of his punishment and his wrath because of sin in our life. Jesus have already absorbed that for us when he died a gruesome death upon the cross. But it doesn't just stop there. No, 
it goes beyond just mercy, and that's where grace comes into play. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. And so we not only are spared from punishment because of sin, but we also are recipients of God's favor. That we can be called children of God. That the Bible refers to us as heirs and we have an inheritance awaiting for us. Last Christmas, uh, our family was back home in Louisville and we were staying with uh, my in-laws and um, I decided to go out one night and hang out with some friends. And so I didn't have a car, so I took my mother-in-law's car. And, and I was running a little bit late to meet up with my friends that night. And so I was driving down the interstate where the speed limit should be much higher than it really is. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw that sight of red and blue lights again. And I thought, oh, no, what's going on here? And so I pulled off to the side of the road. And um, usually when I find myself in this situation, my default response is to pull the Bible that I always keep in my glove box out so that in hopes that the officer will ask me what I do for a living. And usually, you know, that leads to other conversations, and uh, it's how I have a pretty good track record of getting away and uh, not getting tickets. Well, this was my mother-in-law's car, and so as I'm being pulled over, I can't find a Bible anywhere. And so next thing I know, the officer comes up to my window, knocks on the glass. I rolled down the window, and he said, son, do you realize how fast you were going back there? And no, officer, I, I don't know. He said, you were going 22 miles an hour over the speed limit. 77 in a 55 zone. And so I thought, oh, no, I am just so sorry, officer. And he said, let me see your license, registration, and proof of insurance. So I pulled out my license. I went to the glove box, pulled out the proof of insurance and registration, gave them to the officer. And immediately he noticed that the last name on my driver's license was not the last name on the uh, registration because, again, the car belonged to my in-laws. All right? Now, understand that my father-in-law, Savannah's dad, is a pastor at our home church uh, in Louisville. And so he kind of connected the dots here for a second. He said, so is Dave your father-in-law? And I didn't know if this was going to help me or hurt me. All right. (laughs) And so just in the most neutral way possible, I said, yep, that's who I'm related to. Well, he went on to say, well, you know what, I'm a member at his church, and I just love his preaching, and he just, you know, really uh, ministered to me at a vulnerable point in my life. I'm just so great. And so realizing that this guy is a brother, I'm like, oh, he's a blessing from above, isn't he? I mean, he's just, you know, it's awesome. And so he said, you know what, here's your license and registration. You go on, slow it down, but you tell Dave that I said hi. I've never been more grateful for my in-laws, all right? And so I got away that night. And, and what I experienced there on I-64 in Louisville was mercy. He, 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 I didn't get what I deserved. But I didn't experience grace, all right? Now, had the officer wanted to experience grace, it would have played out a little bit differently. He would have pulled me over. He would have said, hey, you're going 22 uh, over the speed limit back there. Justice says, I have to give you a ticket, and so that's what I'm going to do. He would have gone back to his cruiser, written me up a ticket, would have handed the ticket to me and said, here's what it's going to cost. It's going to cost you about $300, and, and you probably don't want to pay that. And, and I'm sorry, but you knowingly broke the law. You knowingly broke the speed limit. This is what you deserve. And so before pulling away that day, if he wanted to be an officer of grace, he would have then pulled out his wallet and said, but you know what, I'm going to pay the penalty myself. And so he would have then pulled $300 out of his wallet and given me the money so that I could pay the fine in full. And so that's grace. That's also unbelievable, right? (laughs) Grace doesn't lessen the offense, right? Grace still charges us as guilty, yet grace pays us what we owe. And so that's what the cross does for us is it says that we are sinners, and apart from Christ, we have no hope. 
Yet at just the right time when we were still God's enemies, he gave us what we needed most. And so the cross of Jesus is a moment in time when God's justice was exercised, his mercy was made known, and his grace was made possible for everyone everywhere. And so the cross not only spares us from what we deserve, but it allows us to graciously receive what we don't deserve. This is why a guy by the name of Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 that the cross of Jesus makes us alive with Christ. And so spreading this message of the cross and the empty grave is the mission that Jesus gave his followers when telling them to be his witnesses. That's what it's all about. But it's not the rest of the story. You see, right after uh, Peter stood up and told everyone about what Christ had done, the very first church was established in the city of Jerusalem. And, And the Greek word used to describe the church, this little community of Jesus' followers, is the Greek word ekklesia. And it literally means the called out ones who gather. Now, this doesn't mean that the church is perfect. This doesn't mean that the church is better than culture or society. It just describes a family who now have a, found, a newfound identity in Christ. And so, in other words, we've been called out of the world that, because this place is no longer our home. But you see, the church is more than just a family gathering each week. The church is more than a building. Now, the book of Acts never says this explicitly, but the church is really a movement. You see, it's an unstoppable force, and it's been that way for the past 2,000 years. Every Jesus-centered local church is a part of something much bigger than themselves. And so what does this have to do with us? I mean, where does Crossroads fit into this? What is the personal application for each of us today? Well, here's the thing. The message, the empty tomb, the cross, is our mission that furthers the movement. You might want to write this down if you're taking notes. The message is our mission that furthers the movement. This is what it's all about. You see, when we stay on mission, keeping our message on the forefront, the church of Jesus is the most unstoppable force the world has ever seen. It's a movement that's been opposed, ridiculed, overlooked, attacked, minimized, banned, and made illegal. But it's only grown even more under pressure and scrutiny. But you know what? This really shouldn't surprise us, right? Because if our message is about a guy that defeated death, if our founder is the one whom a grave couldn't even contain, is it really reasonable to think that some government, terrorist group, presidential candidate, family member, or organization can stop it? You see, the church is an unstoppable movement. And the mission given to us by Jesus is for everyone who has leaned their life on him. And so in other words, we all have a responsibility to further the movement. And so when we as a church collectively embrace this mission, the movement advances. But you see, when the message is no longer the mission, the movement slows down. The movement never stops. It's never stopped. It never will stop. But sometimes churches can be an obstacle and slow the movement down. And so when the message is no longer the mission, the movement slows down. And so to keep that from happening, I want to highlight just some features of this movement that that Jesus identified for us. And and this might be just some personal application for you today. All right, so here's number one feature of the movement. It goes like this. Anyone can join the movement. Anyone can join the movement. Now, the message of Christ isn't just for some people, but it's for all people. A very few of us today would probably disagree with that, but there are many churches that seem to make a valiant effort to make it as difficult as possible for people to be welcome. Now, usually this happens for a variety of reasons. Rarely is it ever intentional. 
Sometimes it's because some secondary issue has taken away from the primary mission. Sometimes Christians get hostile and just angry towards culture, which then turns people away. But let's remember that Jesus never said, hey, make it really difficult for people to hear about me. No, Jesus didn't say, hey, make sure every friend that you have thinks, acts, and talks just like you. No, he never told us to go into the world and offend as many people as possible. Just the opposite happened with the first church. Notice how Luke described the reputation in the community of Jerusalem, in their city. He described what was happening. He said all the while they were praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. In other words, they had a great reputation in their city. Even outsiders, people who were lost and broken, loved them. They had respect. And so what ended up happening? What was the result? And day day after day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You see, there was something so attractive about this church that outsiders were just drawn in and they wanted what they had. You see, as followers of Jesus, we get confused sometimes about our message. Salvation is exclusive. Jesus said it best when he said, hey, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way to be saved, and that is through trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. We will not get to heaven based upon our efforts, based upon our works. We won't get to heaven based upon following some other religion. No, the only way to heaven to be with God for eternity is by trusting in and leaning our life in eternity upon Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. But as a church, catch this. As a church, we are called to share this exclusive message in an inclusive way. We are called to share this exclusive message in a very inclusive way. This is why our staff here works really hard to create a welcoming and excellent environment. Now, we know that we still have a long way to go with this, but my promise to you is that we are going to do whatever it takes to make the people that you've asked, the people that you've risked saying, hey, come with me to attend with you on the weekend to feel welcomed, accepted, and valued. You see, hospitality is a really big value for us here at Crossroads because hospitality is the way that we illustrate what Jesus has done for all of us because it goes like this. Even in spite of our mess, regardless of our past, Jesus welcomed us. He embraced us into his family, and so why can't we do that for others? Now, I also promise you this, that that when your neighbors, your friends, your family members show up with you, that that I or whoever is preaching will preach the word. I promise to to never walk on the stage unprepared or lacking in prayer. I promise to never water down what the Bible teaches, but to always communicate the truth in love. And I also promise to never act better than I am. You probably know that about me by now. I've got a lot of material to go from, all right? So put on your seatbelt and let's go. I will always be open with you and honest. And my experience has been as this, that people far from God, they don't expect us to be perfect. They are looking for us to be real, and they are looking for us to be transparent. This is one of the reasons why I wear jeans when I preach. Now, I know that a lot of you don't care for how I dress. You've made that very clear to me, all right? (laughs) I don't really like sometimes how I dress either. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, okay? And you may not believe me when I first tell you, but you can go back and ask uh, some of the pastors at my home church that I actually prefer to wear a suit and tie to church every week. It's how I was raised. It's what I'm most comfortable with. I was the only student in a high school ministry of about 1,000 students that wore a suit and tie every week to church, all right? It's what I prefer, it's what I prefer to work. One lady told me this past summer that I dress like I'm a slob walking into Walmart. 
I took that as a compliment because I love Walmart, you know. <laughs> and so why, why, why jeans? That's a good question. We all have our expectations. We all have our standards, right? But here's why I wear jeans. You see, a suit and tie would tell people who stumble in here on the weekends that we expect you to dress a certain way, we expect you to look a certain way, and if you don't meet those standards, then you're not welcome here. You see, people have enough obstacles to Jesus. I just don't want what I wear to be one of them. All right? And so may we always be a church where my classmate Stephanie can show up and she can feel welcomed and accepted and loved. Author and pastor Andy Stanley said it like this, if the message of the church is for everybody, we dare not create a church culture that's an obstacle to anybody. And so may we continue to be a church that is more committed to the mission than certain traditions. Let's be more focused on people who aren't here yet than our own personal preferences. Now here's another feature of this movement that I want us to recognize. It goes like this, that sacrifice ignites the movement. Sacrifice ignites the movement. We've totally missed the point. If we think that the point of church is to be entertained and to have all of our needs and wants met, you see, we're a family, but one of the main reasons, if we recall, why families exist to begin with is to grow and add new family members, right? Now, adding to your family is never easy. It's a pretty messy process. Several years ago, I never sat my wife down and said this, hey, I'd really like to do less work cleaning up around the house. I'd like to have less stress and less noise when I come home in the evenings. In fact, I'd really like to start saving more money and and buying more stuff for you and I. And so here's what we're going to do. Let's start having kids. (laughs) That conversation never happened, right? Because the strategy for that to occur is to make it more about the two of us and to not add kids, to not add people. You see, adding family members is messy, it's loud, it's draining, it's chaotic, and and that's just a byproduct of having more people who are broken. And you see, in part, that's why families exist, though. The church is to be a place where new life is celebrated. Jesus said it best in Luke chapter 15 that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need to repent because they're righteous. Now, this only happens when we collectively give up our money, we give up our finances, our time, and our gifts And I love seeing how so many of you serve with joy and give with enthusiasm. A lot of you are just making a tremendous difference in our city by investing into your neighborhood. But the reality is, and and I'm a part of this as well, I'm in the club, we tend to struggle when our needs and preferences aren't met, right? I mean, it's not something that we look forward to. I love basketball, I love college basketball. I'm really excited for the season to start here in about a month. Can you imagine for just a moment if we approached an IU basketball game the way some of us approach church? Well, I decided to not go to the game because, uh, you know, last time I went, I sat by some people who, who couldn't remember my name and, and they, didn't, they didn't know me all that well. And, and the usher who walked me in and helped me find my seat there in assembly hall, he didn't welcome me all that well. He was kind of a jerk, actually. And, and that ref, he made a really bad call that I didn't agree with. And, and Coach Tom Crean, he, he dresses like a slob who walks into Walmart and... Uh, <laughs> No, that sounds crazy, right? It's about the game. It's about what's taking place there on the court. And so let's just remember, it's not about any one of us. A guy named Paul said it like this, Romans chapter 12, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. He's talking about the church. We are many parts of one body and we all belong 
to each other, Paul says. The church isn't a concert that you come and observe. It's not intended to be a country club where members have benefits. No, it's about playing a part in the fulfillment of this mission. It's about focusing on Jesus and other people. And so let me just ask you a really simple question. If you are a follower of Jesus, where are you serving? How are you sacrificing? Which volunteer team are you a part of? Now, maybe a really practical takeaway for you today is simply to stop by our Connection Center directly after service and, and sign up to be a part of our hospitality teams. These teams are, are all about just welcoming people with open arms and making sure that, that we have a very Jesus-focused atmosphere here at Crossroads. And so if that's where you're at, you love. Don't sign up if you hate people, all right? Uh, we want people that actually like people on these teams. And so if you like people and you think God could use me in that capacity, then I just invite you to uh, stop by the Connection Center on the way out. Now, we've talked about this some, but in the next five years, we envision that Crossroads is going to be one church with multiple campuses all across the tri-state region. And the reason behind this, our fuel and motivation for this is to increase people's accessibility to find Jesus. Again, we just don't want a commute to be a barrier for someone who wants to turn to Christ. Now, you may recall back in August how I asked for you to pray that God would help us find a location for our West Campus. And, and this will be our second physical campus, our, our second Crossroads physical campus located on the west side of Evansville. And, and uh, just so you know, we, we need you to keep praying. God has not opened that door yet to find a location. That's uh, it's a really important step for us at this point in time. Now, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is where God is leading us, but it's just not in his timing yet and no doors have opened. And so please join us in praying that God would make it really obvious for us so that we can be a light in a really dark part of our community. Now, you may also recall that uh, the other location that we've announced that we are going to launch uh, is our online campus, Crossroads Online. Now, this will be the Crossroads experience that you will have accessibility to in your living room, uh, in your den, or in your, in your bedroom, all right? Now, this is for people who may never darken the door of the church, but they are willing to log on and view a service for an hour or so in the comfort of their home. Now, we are still in the stages of learning a lot about this and identifying tools to uh, make sure that we launch the online campus in a really intentional and strategic way. We, we're, we're working towards building a team, staff, and, and volunteers who are going to really be the fuel and carry the energy behind this. And, and so a lot of exciting days are ahead of us here at Crossroads, but it won't happen without the collective sacrifice of all of us. No vision in the history of the church ever became reality without some sacrificing. And so this is something that we're in together. And, uh, and I just ask that for right now, you just keep praying. Here's another interesting dynamic about Jesus' movement. It goes like this, that unqualified people advance the movement. Unqualified people advance the movement. Now, this point seems a little bit odd, right? But the book of Acts talks about this very explicitly. First off, Jesus, realized chose one of the most unqualified guys in the world to launch the church that day in Jerusalem. Now, you may not know this, but Peter at one point was very fearful. He was very sporadic. He was an insecure guy who didn't have all that much loyalty. Over a month before he gave that talk in front of thousands of people, he denied knowing Jesus three different times when he was crucified. I mean, to say the least, Peter wasn't the most loyal, qualified guy to stand up and preach this message. And yet, look at what 
Acts chapter 4 says about Peter and another guy by the name of John who were out in public proclaiming this message and, and the religious authorities didn't really like what they were saying and so they arrested them and put them on trial and look at what the religious Lord authorities observed about Peter and John. It says this in Acts chapter 4. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Now, Peter and John didn't have a diploma, all right? They didn't have a certain title to their name. There wasn't anything special about them. You could even argue that they didn't know a lot about the Bible. And yet, it's guys like this that really give me a lot of hope, all right? I never was all that great at school. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a doctor for the longest time until I realized that you had to be good at school to be a doctor. And... Uh, I struggled with a lot of different learning disabilities all growing up, and I'm not insecure about them. It's just who I am. And, and just to give you an idea how much I did struggle with school growing up, uh, at the end of my sophomore year of high school, my mom and dad threw me a huge party at the end of the school year because I got a D minus in chemistry. D as in dog, not B as in boy, all right? <laughs> Standards were very low for me growing up, right? <laughs> Now, one thing that makes the movement of God so unique is that he uses who he wants, right? To tell people about Jesus, you don't need to wear a robe. You don't need a certain diploma. You don't have to have a certain title. You don't even have to know a lot about the Bible. God tends to qualify the unqualified. You don't need to be perfect. God is just looking for humble people who are willing to serve him and to reflect him where they are. And so here's one last attribute about this movement. It goes like this. That the movement keeps going as we pass on to others what we've received. The movement keeps going as we pass on to others what we've received. Our job is simple. Tell people about Jesus. Share with others what he's done for us. Now here's the thing. If you have received salvation, chances are it's because someone in your past passed on to you what he or she had received from someone else. Now, you know, it's really interesting that of all the different images Jesus could have chosen to describe himself, he chooses the image of a doctor. And so one day he was being criticized by a bunch of religious people because he had been hanging out with a bunch of drunks and prostitutes and tax collectors. And and so Jesus responded to their criticism by saying this in, in the book of Luke. Take a look at what he said. He said, look, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And so I have come, in other words, I, I am that doctor to call not those who think that they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners and need to repent. And so if Jesus is the founder of this movement, if Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, then doesn't that kind of make the church a hospital? (laughs) And you see, this is a hospital where people who are on the brink of death can come and find life. This is a hospital where sick people are healed yet again. And so may we as a church continue to be all about that. Now I'm almost done here. And Chris and and the band are gonna come out and sing one last song. And I'm gonna tell you about that song here in just a second. But I thought about it, you know, how how do I wanna leave this message? What's the takeaway? What's the next step for for a lot of us in here? I thought about one time in, in Jesus' ministry when Somebody approached him and said, hey, Jesus, what, what, what's most important in life? I mean, what, what, what do you require? And Jesus responded by saying, well, 
Let me just sum everything up to you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he said, and the second command is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the question is, who's our neighbor, right? Well, our neighbor is anybody who needs us. It's not necessarily reserved to the house that is right next to us on our street, but it's anybody in our life who needs us, and we are called to love them. Now, here's the takeaway. Here's the next step that I want to challenge you with today. It's really hard to love your neighbor if you don't know their name, right? And so here's what I want to leave with you today. What would it look like for you to walk out your front door, to cross the street, and just get to know a neighbor, someone who lives on your street, and get to know uh, their name. Maybe it's walking across the yard. Maybe you know a lot of people on your street. Maybe you know a lot of people in your neighborhood. But I'm willing to bet that you don't know everybody. And so where is that next house that you still have not interacted with? Now, don't be creepy about this, all right? Don't be like a Jehovah's Witness and wear a suit and tie and ride over on a bike, you know. Hey, yeah, they're not going to open the door, all right? And if you do that to me, I'm not opening the door either, <laughs> But have no strings attached. And, and you see, loving people, it starts by getting to know their name. And so don't have an agenda and just say, hey, I just want to take an interest in you. I love what uh, one pastor, a guy by the name of Rick Warren said one time. He said, you know, God requires not for us to be interesting people. He just requires that we be interested in people. And I think we all can do that. And so that's what I want to leave with you uh, this week. I'm going to pray. Uh, I'm going to tell you about this song, and then they're going to sing. All right, let's pray. God, I thank you that um, in spite of our past, you've welcomed us. And Lord, we've all been that lost and broken and, and sick person that Jesus, you described in that verse we just read. And, and had you not been the doctor that intervened and brought us healing, we'd still be lost on the brink of death. And I know that that's where many of us are at. That's where many of us in our community are at right now. And so help us, Father, to advance your kingdom, to advance the light, God, because it's what it's what matters most. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I've asked the band to come out and sing a song called All the Poor and Powerless. And it may be tough for you to see at first, but it's really all of our stories that describe some of our past. And yet it also compels us to move forward, to share with others what we in turn have received. And so just sit there. Uh, and then at some point when you feel moved, you may stand up and worship along with us. Check this out. <laughs>